Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From MCIE. The internet says it is too late to wish you a happy new year, so happy January, everyone. My name is Tim Viegas, and you are listening to the Think Inclusive podcast. Presented by MCIE, this podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. To find out more about who we are and what we do, check us out at thinkinclusive.us or on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are bringing you an extra long episode today. When it is all produced, it will clock in at around one hour, but I encourage you to settle in for a fascinating discussion. Our guests are Amanda Darrow of the Utah Pride Center and Shambi Polychronis with the University of Utah. We talk about honoring intersectionality between the disability and the LGBTQIA communities. We cover a lot of ground, but here is a quick preview. We discuss how gender differs from sexuality, which differs from sex. We talk about pronouns. They share stats on people who identify as both LGBTQIA and disabled. We discuss ways educators can make our classrooms more inclusive for both communities. And Amanda and Shambi respond to the question, if kids consume media that has LGBTQIA representation, won't it just confuse them? I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for listening, subscribing, and rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And now, our interview with Amanda Darrow and Shambi Polychronis. Today on the podcast, we have Amanda Darrow, who holds a master's degree in education and a bachelor's degree in clinical and counseling psychology, both from Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah. Amanda works at the Utah Pride Center to make homes more accepting and welcoming for our youth and families, schools and community spaces more inclusive for all, and to educate the current and future generations about our incredible LGBTQIA community. Dr. Shambi Polychronis is an assistant professor of special education at the University of Utah. She's a passionate advocate for disability rights and has over 20 years of experience in the field. She advocates for social justice issues, including intersectionality, alternatives to guardianship, full inclusion in school and community environments, eliminating aversive interventions, and meaningful employment. Uh, Shambi and Amanda, welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for having us. Uh, So really excited to have uh, y'all on. I saw a... um, presentation you gave at TASH about honoring intersectionality. And um, the the thing that I, I think is so important for our audience, and, um, and our audience is mostly uh, special education teachers, general ed teachers, principals, administrators uh, from all around the country and the world, is, you know, there isn't enough um, safe spaces for us to talk about intersectionality uh, and kind of what it means, and for us to ask questions about, um, you know, gender and identity, um, sexuality, attraction, 
all this stuff that I learned <laughs> and, uh, and we were just touching, you know, the, the, the tip of the iceberg here. Um, so I really wanted to have you on, uh, to talk about that with our, um, with our community. Uh, but before we do that, would each of you share your role, um, at the Utah Pride Center and University of Utah respectively? Yeah. So, um, I am the director of youth family and education here at the Utah Pride Center. And uh, what that means, kind of you said it in my bio, I really work to work with families and uh, youth to really make their homes more inclusive, their spaces more inclusive. I work with educators on how to make their classrooms, their curriculum, um, everything just welcoming to the LGBTQIA plus community. Thanks, Amanda. And this is Shambi. I am um, a professor at University of Utah. I, uh, I have also worked in other colleges and universities and made a switch about three years ago, starting back over uh, as an assistant professor so that I can get back into some research as well. Uh, my big focus, my, my main hat that I wear is preparing teacher candidates to become special educators. Uh, and so I do a lot of work in the schools and also preparing teachers to meet all their licensure requirements. Um, and then, you know, on the side, I, I, I still advocate for the things I'm the most passionate about, and that is anything related to disability rights. Um, and so that kind of covers a, a broad variety of things I go. <laughs> Well, I'm sure in our conversation, you know, maybe some of those things will come up and we can we can touch on those as well. Um, so what I wanted to dig into um, to start us off is, you know, when, when I was a special education teacher, um, uh, I struggled with having conversations about gender, uh, about sexuality um, and and I think that it's not just an educator thing, right? I think a lot of people struggle to have those conversations in a meaningful and authentic way. Um, and so I was struck with just how clear the communication was with your PowerPoint. So I really wanted to, um, you know, have you uh, give you the chance to explain the way that you explained to us in our, in the presentation, you know, let's, you know, about gender, right? So in the PowerPoint, you actually had this visual of, uh, it was a, a gender bred person, which I thought was really clever, um, that breaks down identity, attraction, sex, uh, and expression. So would you share that with our audience? And, uh, and then maybe we can, you know, dive a little bit deeper into the, some of the, some of, the, some of those concepts. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the genderbred person, the one that I use specifically um, was created by Sam Killerman, and you can find that at it's pronounced metrosexual.com. Um, I do want to point out that, that Sam created this image, but we do not know who created the actual genderbred person. So if you're out there, we're still searching for you. Come forward. We're trying to find you, the original creator. Um, so in this image, um, it's widely used in the LGBTQIA plus community to really show that um, we, we break up gender identity, gender expression, anatomical sex, our attraction, who we're sexually and romantically attracted to. And the ways that we do that is to really break it up step by step. And, um, you know, it's really important because folks don't recognize that we break up sex and gender. And um, when we do that, it helps others understand, you know, the biological components compared to the ways that we um, know ourselves to be. So, um, for example, um, I always start with sex because we're all assigned sex at birth. And when we when we explain this, um, usually, typically, there's two ways that we've been assigned a sex at birth, and that's being female and being male. But now we're starting to see um, individuals who are being assigned intersex. And I always use the organization Interact. They have a wonderful definition for folks who don't know what being intersex means. And intersex is an umbrella term for differences in sex traits or reproductive anatomy. And intersex people are born with these differences or develop them in childhood. There are many possibility um, 
possibilities in these differences, which is genitalia, hormones, internal anatomy, chromosomes. And um, that's just compared to the usual two ways that human bodies develop. So um, folks often just think that, you know, you have the option of being male and being female. And that's, we're starting to see that that's not the case. So those are our, that's the sex, the physical makeup. We then move to um, our gender and our gender identity. And this is who we know ourselves to be. And we typically try to explain gender identity as, um, so if you are cisgender and you are assigned um, a sex assigned at birth, say you are assigned female at birth and you identify as a woman, you are a cisgender woman. So I was assigned female at birth. I um, identify as a woman, so I'm cisgender woman. If for if my gender identity did not correspond with the way my sex was assigned at birth, and so say I was assigned female at birth and I identify as a man, I would be a transgender man. So transgender is an umbrella term for anyone whose sex assigned at birth and gender identity do not correspond. And it's really important that we talk about um, the fact that being transgender, um, you do not have to go through what individuals know as medical transition to be transgender. Um, the only thing you need to do to be transgender is to say you are transgender. So um, if your gender identity, who you know yourself to be does not correspond with your sex assigned at birth, you are transgender. Um, many do go through medical transition, but it's not it's not a requirement. Um, and underneath the, or the transgender umbrella, we have identities like non-binary, gender fluid, third gender and two spirit. We have agender. So those are all identities within the transgender community that don't, um, the, whose gender identities do not correspond with their sex assigned at birth. Um, and they all kind of have different identities within that umbrella. So um, for example, someone who is non-binary doesn't necessarily identify with being in the binary of a man and a woman, right? And it doesn't mean that they're right there in the middle. It just means they're not binary. Their identities may range. They could be um, somewhere feeling a little more um, like a man or a little more like a woman, but they might not feel like either. It, it's just kind of an expansive understanding of um, gender identity. So then we move in. So we've got those two. So, and one of the main things that I always touch on is that when we talk about these identities, they might correspond with one another or they might not. So when we move into our um, gender expression, for example, we have um, folks who could be gender non-conforming. I myself am gender non-conforming. I'm a very masculine woman. I tell folks all the time, you rarely see me out of a tie. Um, the times you've met me, Tim, I'm in a tie. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's my look. Um, and it's, it's non-conforming with society because we don't expect women to be in masculine presentations. Um, a feminine man would be another example of gender non-conforming. And um, our expressions don't have to necessarily equal our gender identities. Uh, that's what I mean when it could align. I'm a cisgender woman who's very masculine. And um, we then move to an androgynous look. Those are folks who a lot of times people think individuals who are non-binary must be androgynous because you can't share, you know, a masculine feminine look if you want to be non-binary, but that's not the case. You can have a very feminine presentation and still be non-binary. That's what we mean when these identities do not need to correlate or do not need to add up to each other. Um, androgynous can also be a blend. It can be where um, if I wanted to wear a dress shirt and tie and a skirt, that's a very androgynous look because you can't see either masculine or feminine and point out which one I'm dressing as. So um, that's kind of our gender expression. So we've got our sex, sex assigned to birth, we've got our gender identity, who we know ourselves to be, the gender expressions, how we pre present on the outside. And then we move into our orientations and um, with attraction. So um, when you assign gender based on um, who you are assigning your gender based on your attraction, you're getting your sexual and romantic orientation. So um, this is where 
you know, we, we see our sexualities and this is, we can be part of the LGBTQIA plus community and identify as homosexuals or outside of the community as heterosexuals. We have our lesbians, women who are attracted to other women, gay, which is men who are attracted to other men, but often an umbrella term that we, we use in the community um, just to say we're attracted to members of the same gender. We have bisexual for individuals who are attracted to people of two gender identities pansexuals, someone, I always say pan for all, you're attracted to all gender identities and expressions. Um, and then when we use that into you, uh, our romantic orientation, we basically have, you know, hetero romantic, meaning that you're romantically attracted to members of the opposite sex or gender, homo romantic, homo uh, just as homosexuals, you're attracted romantically to members of the same sex or gender. Bi-romantic, that's bi for two. Um, so you're romantically attracted to members of the, the two gender identities or sexes. And pan, pan for all, all individuals romantic, or you're romantically attracted to members of all orientations and sexes. And then aromantic, everyone always wonders what the A stands for. Sometimes they ask me if it's ally. And I'm like, no, it's not ally. I want to say that right here, right now. Um, so A can mean aromantic, um, asexual. A I typically say for no or very little. So A for no, um, but it is not ally. So let's, <laughs> let's say that here. Um, so all of these, these things that I try to explain when we do this. Now I've given you a sexual orientation and a romantic orientation and people don't often think of those as different. They think that when you're attracted to someone, you automatically have a sexual attraction or a romantic attraction with that same person. And that's not the case. I myself could be um, sexually attracted to say uh, women and non-binary folks but I could be romantically attracted to women, men, non-binary folks. I could have a, a more of a broad range for, for my romantic orientation than I do with a sexual orientation. And when we bring that into disability, we often um, assume that folks who um, are in the disability community automatically are asexual or aromantic and have no attractions whatsoever. And Shambi is going to do a wonderful job diving into that a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's an important conversation. Um, so a couple things, a couple things that you said, Amanda, um, that. I just wanted to point out because when I first when I heard this information for the first time, there was a, a couple um, couple things that surprised me. So, number one, when you talked about um, transgender, if someone is transgender, it doesn't mean that they have to transition, right? And I think that's a misconception. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right? Everyone's gender journey is going to be their own gender journey. Um, it it is their route. They will, they will take what measures they need to find their affirming selves. They will, it, it's not just a, this is what it means to tr be transgender. And many people thought that you have to go through surgery. You have to take hormones. You have to do all these steps to be transgender, but that's not the case. No, absolutely. It is. You just need to say, you know what, my sex assigned at birth and gender identity don't correlate. This is who I am. I'm trying to match myself to who I know myself to be. And, um, it's all individualized. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, so that's the one thing. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting about what you said was, um, the, about pansexual, because I think there's also like, again, before I heard this, um, uh, I understood it to be not what you said. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So, um, and I, I think that um, just to reiterate, you know, there's there's a lot of misconceptions around around all of this information. So, like, like people can people can listen to this conversation and you know uh, get some more information, but where are we supposed to? find this information, you know, like, 
like where would we go like if we just google you know one of your terms i i have a feeling like there'd be a number of different interpretations right yeah so that's that's absolutely something we're trying to build a conversation because how i define these may not be how someone else defines them. And it's really important to know, and I'm not trying to confuse anyone, but it's really important to know that when we find, you know, if we say we're, we're bisexual, um, what I, what I term as bisexual is kind of the overarching understanding of the community. Right. But that doesn't mean someone who identifies as bisexual has to say, oh, that's the term that fits best with me. That's the, that's the language you use to define bisexual. It, it really is how we interpret it, how we say it, how we explain it to others. And that's the biggest thing that you can do is talk with individuals in the community. When someone says I'm bisexual, you might wanna say, you know what? I've heard many different uh, definitions of bisexual. What does it mean to you? If you're comfortable sharing with me, what does that mean to you? And um, you know, some people will often explain that to you. They may not, they may say, you can Google it, but it really is. Um, <laughs> it's best to just ask people what those terms mean to them and how they identify. And um, when we use these terms, um, it is kind of a loose definition, but a broad understanding. Where you would find that is, um, you know, there's excellent books. Um, again, Sam Killerman wrote a wonderful one on gender, and it can help you understand all these different um, identities in different ways too. Um, there's multiple aspects of where you can find this, but just talking to folks in the community is probably the best way to really understand how we identify and what it means to us. The other thing I wanted to ask was about, uh, about pronouns um, and specifically how educators can use pronouns in their classroom to, to make it more um, you know, to, to normalize the usage of them because you know, we have teachers who have worked in classrooms for years and years and years. And, and they're like, well, you know, what's with the pronouns putting it after their name or, you know, why, why should that even be a thing? So help, help educators help us understand why that's important. Yeah. The first thing I'm going to say is it's wonderful that it's being discussed in classrooms, but I'm hoping that we make it more broad and we use it in our everyday lives. Um, when I introduce myself to someone, I always say, my name's Amanda, I use she, her pronouns. Um, it's nice to meet you, what pronouns do you use? And um, the reason I do this is because I always want to respect every individual that I talk to. I wanna make sure I'm not misgendering people because the assumptions could happen and I could assume that they use those pronouns and they may not use those pronouns. So as an educator, it's especially important for us to uh, make sure we're not misgendering our students. Um, and the reason for that, and we've seen it in numerous studies, but respecting uh, pronouns is suicide prevention. When students have their pronouns respected by all or most of the people in their lives, they attempt suicide at half the rates of those who do not have their pronouns respected. So it's often um, something that we do just to protect our students. And um, when, we, when we just model our pronouns, that's the first thing you can do. I am always wearing a pronoun pin. Um, we gave out pronoun pins here in the state of Utah from the Utah Pride Center and um, to any educator that wanted them. And they went state, state by state, people were asking for them. So it wasn't just Utah. Um, it just said simply their pronouns. It said she, her, or they, them, um, whatever pronouns the educators wanted. And that opened up the way for a student to walk up to a teacher and see that. As soon as they see you modeling it, whether you use it in the classroom and say, you know, my name is Amanda and I use she, her pronouns, students see, okay, it's safe for me to say this. It's safe for me to tell you my pronouns. So modeling is the first way to show educators or to show students that these educators are here to respect and, and use the correct pronouns. So um, modeling is a great way. I often see nameplates outside of educators' classrooms that will say, you know, their last names and then the pronouns they use on their doors, um, in email signatures, on Zoom calls, if people are still doing uh, virtual classrooms. Um, we really are just looking for ways for students to see. And um, again, the importance is this is just suicide prevention and we really wanna use pronouns 
um, it saves lives. Yeah, that's that's powerful. That's powerful, and it's such it's such an easy thing to do, right? <laughs> it does doesn't require um, a whole lot <laughs> of us. Just acknowledging, yeah. Uh, did you have anything to add for that, Shambi? I didn't. I don't want to. You know, I know. I know we're talking about intersectionality, but I didn't want to not have you participate. Yeah, I, I mean, Amanda really covered it, but I, I think just even kind of going back to those small pieces, there's big pieces, pieces that really make you breathe heavily, like what if a parent sees this, and, and we'll talk about those maybe in a minute, but, you know, just some some smaller ones I do even at the college level, right? I make sure I put my pronouns in, my syllabi, they are in my uh, uh, my email signature. They're right now on my Zoom. By the way, they're she, her. We kind of <laughs> missed that in our intro today. But, um, you know, there's just these pieces. And, and I've had multiple students say right off the bat, I was so grateful to see your pronouns because I know you're you're somebody who won't judge me, right? I, a lot of people, especially coming into teacher education, if they identify um, as trans and non-binary, they're really nervous about what that means for getting a license. And the minute they see my tagline, they know they can at least ask me the question, what's my reality to getting a license, right? So it, it is kind of that, hey, I'm open to this. I'm, I, I'm open to this conversation and you can ask me these questions and, and I'll talk to you about my identity. It also helps too, because I've been told many times that uh, people are surprised when they meet me. Uh, my name evidently sparks a, a, a thought that I'm gonna be this middle-aged Greek man. And um, I don't know where that comes from, but so, you know, pronouns help for lots of reasons, but that's uh, true. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I don't think I have that thought, but I did, I didn't notice it was a unique name. Mm -hmm. So is it, yeah. it's, is it short for anything or is it? No, that's, that's the whole, that's name, the whole yeah. name. All right. Whole name. Excellent. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, so um, also in your presentation, um, you cited some numbers about uh, people who identify as both LGBTQIA plus and disabled. Um, so this is kind of where we bring, can bring in that intersectionality piece. And um, would you share that with our audience? Yeah. Well, let me tell you just a quick story on why this even started in my head of something I was interested in, because my background really is disability and, and guardianship and inclusion. Those are the biggest things I, I want to make sure that inclusion is front and center and we're not taking away rights without recognizing it. And uh, I was teaching a class specific on autism every single year. And what I recognized pretty soon is the demographics of my college age students were changing. And I started seeing more um, trans and non-binary students in that class. And they were often self-identifying as also, um, this, this is their identity as saying I'm, I'm trans and autistic um, and, or my brother is, or my twin is. Yeah. And about year three, it kind of clicked in. Wow. Wow, there, there might be something to this. So I've, I've been watching numbers for quite a while now, and just in the last couple of years, there's been some really interesting ones come out. So for example, the Movement Advancement Project um, has a big list of intersectionality um, with disability and LGBTQIA identities. And just to give you a sense that there's an estimated three to five million people that identify as both LGBTQIA plus and disabled. Um, within the general population, that's about 27.2 um, general uh, population reporting having a disability. But within the LGBTQIA, those numbers go up pretty significant. So we're talking 40% of bisexual men, 40% of transgendered adults, 36% of lesbian women and bisexual women, 26% of gay men reporting having a disability. So um, aside from um, gay men, the numbers are really a lot higher uh, within the LGBTQ plus uh, community than it is the general population. And I wanna pause there for just a second and just make sure I wanna say this multiple times, LGBTQIA plus identity is not a disability. And I just want to keep reiterating mm -hmm. that. Because, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And in my world, especially working with students with intellectual disability, it is really common for teachers and parents to say, like, like Amanda said, um, either one, assuming cisgender 
and assuming, um, you know, asexuality. There's no interest there. So I don't know what this behavior is all about because my kid's not interested in <laughs> sex, right? Like, I mean, I, I all teachers have these stories, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, so it goes both ways, right? Uh, LGBTQIA plus is not a disability. And on the flip side, having a disability does not create errors in understanding our own identities and expressions and orientation. Um, so diving a little bit more into the numbers, a few more interesting facts um, is that the intersectionality specific of autism and trans identities have really kind of hit the news in the last two, three years. Uh, for example, 14% of transgender or non-binary adults also identify as being autistic um, compared to 4% of the general population. So that's a really significant number. And it could be even higher. Um, the, the, the Movement Advancement Project estimates it could be an additional 28% higher than that 14% number because of the issue of not having diagnosed, mm. right? having displayed autistic traits. So um, there's an interesting phenomenon. I think us as educators are very used to like, hey, what's your WISC score? Or what's the Woodcock Johnson number, right? Like we're used to that kind of language. But within the self-advocacy side of disability, so we're talking about the students that we worked with their whole lives, they grow up and then they go out into the world, or maybe we never even worked with them to begin with, there's starting to be some, some interesting acceptance of self-identity, um, self-identifying as being autistic or um, uh, having autistic characteristics. And so that's where that number potentially could be a lot higher. Does it give you services? No, we all know the rules. You have to have that diagnosis. But, but does it maybe help give people a way to explain to their friends, loved ones, coworkers, um, the ways in which they interact with other people? Absolutely. Uh, so in your research and looking at the numbers, um, and I, I know you specifically cited autism, but is it is it any like neurodivergent, you know, um, aspect in it like? Or is it specifically autism that is is kind of like the? I don't know if I don't know if that question made sense. <laughs> Absolutely, it, it's a totally great question because it's one I also had, and I think many of us are curious about. I think it's that the research really has has been around autism and the intersectionality and i think there's multiple reasons for that the interest is really high in autism the research funding is really high in autism so it makes sense that that's where the direction is um, and then on top of that um, you know again i think that's where the community interest is and this is a population that can speak for themselves often and they have language and they have the you know but there's less research or any at this time that I'm aware of. It might be in progress right now or newly published, but um, we haven't looked at as much at other things like ADHD, for example, or OCD and, and things. Um, but disability world in general, uh, we do have that three to five million number mm -hmm. of, of intersectionality. So I think that disability in general, neurodiversity is, is fairly um, specific to autism. But I think it was because of a magnitude article that really sparked this interest and it what you know there, there's been a lot of stuff come out for example from the Silicon Valley and here in Utah Silicon Slopes right where we started seeing some of these advanced numbers of autism and then we started advanced numbers in LGBTQIA plus identification and thinking wow that's interesting let's talk about that for a minute mm. um, so I think that's where the research has come from, is that's where we started noticing first. Um, but I, I highly anticipate we're going to start seeing things related to other neurodiverse identities pretty soon. Mm, okay. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, this question is for, is for both of you, really. Um, you know, as an educator, what can, uh, what can, as educators, what can we do to make our classrooms and our schools more inclusive for both uh, LGBTQIA plus and the disability community. I'm going to let, well, 
Yeah, I'm going to let Amanda take the bulk of this because she has done some really significant contributions to the field in this with her master's project. But what I'll say is from a teacher perspective, right, is I see this as a three-layered approach. There's things we can do individually with building relationships, right? We know how important that is. We just talked about using pronouns as a way to say, hey, come talk to me. I, I'm open to these conversations. I, I encourage them. Um, but we can do a lot with our environment too. I'll let Amanda talk a little bit more about that. But one thing I am just like bound and determined to get across despite what it does to my personal career and reputation is we've got to start addressing a, a stronger um, policy. Uh, you know, people in leadership positions have got to, to start pushing back on the, the extreme conservative um, behaviors that we're starting to see with removal of books in the classroom, with um, inability to co have conversations about this. This is, I, I mean, you take a, a conservative place like I live in, right? And what we find out really quickly is we can't even talk about sexual health, right? Unless we can tie it into an IEP goal, right? And um, so a lot of teachers steer away from all of it. So it's like, well, how do you talk about menstruation, right? Uh, that's that's the health, you know, how do you talk about that if it's been globbed into sex, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in conservative spaces, everything that, that is uncomfortable to talk about gets gets globbed in together as being bad, right? Um, but the, the truth of the matter is we have got to start pushing back a little bit on that rhetoric and saying this is suicide prevention, this is about mental health, this is about functional life skills, this is about um, you know, appreciation and, um, you know, inclusion, uh, we have to start pushing back on that rhetoric because it's happening really covertly. Um, and if, if you don't think teachers are more nervous about talking about this, I mean, I, I taught in the field 20 years ago, right? Um, that's when I was a classroom teacher. And I remember how nervous my colleagues were to talk about things like menstrual care, um, what to do when students are self-stimming in a sexual way. Mm -hmm. You know, teachers didn't know how to deal with that. And it's like, wow, okay, well, this is kind of basic, generic, like developmental information that we should be giving them. Now, flash forward 20 years and we're banning books in classrooms because we don't like the way they're going. Um, teachers don't dare talk about anything right now. And it's actually chasing people from the field. Um, so that's where I'll stop because Amanda has some really good practical suggestions. <laughs> that was wonderful, Shambi. Um, you touched on pronouns. And one of the biggest things I always think about is dead naming a child. So a dead name is the name that often uh, transgender non-binary students might use. And then um, instead, that was their legal name. The dead name is the legal name. So we don't use the, le the dead legal or dead name in the classroom, if at all possible. Um, we use what name they, they, they're choosing to use now. And um, something really important is not always will the system allow students to update it. So something that happens and I saw happen this last week is teachers forget to let substitute teachers know. And so a student is dead named. Um, so when you use those names, make sure you use them all the time. Um, you know, and an important thing that you need to ask students is if they come up and they tell you which name they prefer to be called. Um, the first thing I often say is, okay, who do you like me to use this name in front of? Do you want me to use this in front of parents and caregivers? Do you want me to use this with other educators? It's really important. And yeah, it's hard. We have to code switch. If they say, no, I only am comfortable using this in your classroom, then we only use that name in their class, our classroom with them. Um, and then we code switch. We may have to use, and we tell them, we may have to use, you know, your, your dead name in front of other educators then or in front of your parents or caregivers, um, because it's not our job to out our students when they're not, if they're not ready and they're comfortable with us, then we only use those names in front of us. And that's the same with pronouns. When a student does say, hey, I use they, them pronouns, you say, do you want me to use those pronouns in front of other educators, your parents, your caregivers, where should we use these? Because I want to make sure that you're safe when I use these pronouns. Because um, it's often not your Sometimes as the educator, the first person they ever want to use these names with, they want to know it's safe. They want to know their pronouns are respected before they're able to come out to others. So um, it's the little things we can do as educators there with, with names and pronouns. 
Um, other things that people don't typically think about is the way we gender our classrooms, especially in elementary school classrooms. So um, hall passes, as simple as a hall pass, it typically says boys and girls. Where do our non-binary students go? What bathroom pass do they have to take? Um, when we say, okay, boys and girls, time to line up. If we're putting them into classrooms where um, we sit them, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, um, also we're assuming their gender identities by doing this. Um, we wanna remove those assumptions. Another thing that I, you know, Shambi talked about these books being banned. Number one, we absolutely want to make sure that we have representation in schools, right? We want to make sure that we are including LGBTQIA plus authors or books um, into our classroom. But we also want to think about maybe if there's, you know, already curriculum in the classrooms that are reinforcing a heteronormative classroom environment. For example, if you're reading a story um, for, we have one here in Utah that is called um, Brother and Sister. And it is about a brother and sister who grow rice um, in China. And the brother needs to take home more rice because he has a family to feed. And the woman does not take as much rice because her husband should provide that for her. Um, that is reinforcing um, the stereotypes, number one, of what to expect from men in family settings and to expect that the woman's going to marry a man and the man has a family with a woman. We can, we can show those types of um, families, but if we're showing those families, we have to show the other families. We have to show representation of maybe two women two men, um, you know, maybe non-binary couple. We have to think through what we're showing and what we're putting into what we call um, hidden curriculum because it's already there. It's already in our classrooms. So we really need to expand on making sure that all curriculum is included. And when people push back, we want to push back and say, you know what, well, this curriculum is being shown. So if this curriculum is being shown, our curriculum will be shown. And um, Shambi, you could probably share a little bit about how we can do that um, in the realms of disability and inclusion of um, the community in the classroom as well, right? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, this kind of goes back to a couple of things. One is, especially when, when our students need help and physical assistance, right? We, we start treating everything as an error. And that's really a problem um, for teachers to be thinking about if, if they really aren't in tune to, you know, their unconscious bias, for example, that uh, one, we, we tend to go in extremes. This is a harmful assumption, right? That there's a presumed lack of interest um, with sexuality if you have a disability or there's a presumption of like extreme interest in sexuality mm. if you're LGBTQIA+, right? For so sure, yeah. Viewpoint has to be challenged. We have to challenge our own. The error thinking that disability does not, you know, create confusion about our identity and, and expression and attraction, and the LGBTQIA identity is not a disability. And then finally, and this is a problem that's been in special education forever, is this idea of fixing, right? And this is where both of our communities and and you know the intersect actually really. Uh, there's a lot of commonality. But within the disability um, thought is like this concept that they are wrong, that something was broken early on, we've got to fix it, we've got to treat it, we've got to, you know, it's led to all sorts of harmful and even deadly treatments. We know very much about like shock therapy, for example, that both of these populations um, have had to endure and it's still legal within the disability community, right? Um, and, and the other idea of fixing and, and that causes errors and assumptions is this mourning the child you thought you had. We, we actually told parents this is a normal grieving process, but mm. then it causes secondary trauma to these kids. You know, like it's really harmful for the, the, that relationship over time. And so kind of bringing it back into a classroom, one, we have to challenge as teachers, we have to challenge the kind of information we're sharing with parents, especially in that transition age where a lot of this comes up 14 to 16. Um, and we have to really think twice about that. And then also quit treating things as an error, like, oh, that's cute, you don't understand. You can't have a crush on Billy, right? You know, mm -hmm. it, it, 
we have done that. We've infantilized kids um, at, based on their disability and then you know, quit, quit respecting that. And I don't know if this is helpful to talk about for just a minute, but maybe talking about where some of our laws could be protective of um, the intersectionality between these two populations um, in particular. Um, for one, because there are a lot of mental health concerns around having your, I don't know, your existence, your value challenged every single day <laughs> tends to create some mental health issues, right? Um, the depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, those are very common in both of these communities. Um, but, uh, you know, not being able to use the restroom that you feel safe in, not being able to share your pronouns, being dead named, we know that's creating a lot of issues. Um, and so ADA can actually be, again, I want to reiterate, um, the identity of LGBTQIA plus is not a disability. However, the mental health concerns that are around being dismissed constantly and being treated for anxiety and depression, that actually can create, um, can, can provide some accommodations to those who are struggling with mental health disorders mm -hmm. in public spaces, right? So in schools, accommodations can be used, um, including on IEPs and 504 plans for anxiety, related to activities like getting ready, getting dressed, using the bathroom, um, those kinds of things. So, um, and then above that, we have FAPE, right? Free and appropriate public education under IDEA. Um, there, there's been tested lawsuits on this one that allowing bullying, and we didn't even talk about bullying for both of these communities, is so much more significant for these communities than it is in the general population, which is already completely unacceptable, by the way, right? So it, it's really high here. Um, but bullying and it is a violation of free and appropriate public education, and the school can be held accountable to remediate that. So there is some financial retribution to a school for not protecting kids against bullying. Um, and then obviously Title IX, it, ha it comes into play here too. Um, harassment or punishment for failing to conform to sex-based stereotypes is prohibited by Title IX. So we have to look at our dress codes. We have to look about the way that we're penalizing students for the way they're showing up to school and behaving in school, that if we're operating from this heteronormative framework, we very well could be violating laws as well. Mm. Wow, that's a, a lot there, a lot there. Um, there. And I love the way I love the way that um, uh, Shambi, you brought in the policy aspect of that. And uh, I love Amanda, all of your very practical um, uh, strategies for educators to uh, make our spaces and schools uh, more inclusive. Um, I'm wondering if you know it. If we have a principal or administrator listening to this conversation and, you know, maybe this is the first time they've thought about like, you know, about these concepts, you know, about like, oh my gosh, is, is my school, how, how I'm running my school, is it, you know, heteronormative and like, like how, what, what would you suggest they do? How, how, what's the next step for them if, if this is sounding some alarm bells in them and saying, oh, I really need to dig into this more. Like, where can I find more information? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a good time to say I am doing a conference specifically on LGBTQIA plus inclusion in schools on January 22nd. It is virtual, so um, educators can join us. You can find it at utahpridecenter.org. Um, and this conference specifically breaks down ways to make your classroom and schools more inclusive. There's an administrative role, uh, track, there's an educator's track, there's a community track, there's a student's track. So um, there's, there's space for educators to learn more and get some more practical ideas of what to do for their schools. But the first thing is walk in your school and look around, challenge what's in your schools to say, is this for all students or is there stuff represented on my walls for all communities, all families? Um, because the, you walk in that space every day and if you start to look around and say, oh, there isn't a rainbow flag or there isn't a rainbow sticker, there's not a trans sticker. How can I make students walk in and know you're welcome, you belong, and I value you and see you in this space. That's the first thing an educator can do. Um, make your space be seen. Um, it, it's the 
easiest way to make sure that these students really feel comfortable. We can't learn in spaces that aren't comfortable for us. If we're being constantly taught and reminded that heteronormativity is the is the norm or cisnormative is the way to uh, go and be expected, uh, we're not going to learn the same way as other students. We owe it to our LGBTQIA plus students to build them an inclusive environment. Um, so walking into your school and starting to look around and, and see that, and then building your own professional learning day in and day out for all students, um, whether it's for the LGBTQIA plus community or the disability community, we can keep going. Um, we need space for our BIPOC students. We, we, we know we have to build these spaces in our schools, period. We're, we're, we're not a cookie cutter society. It's time to really open up the, the classroom and, and our schools. Oh man, the great ideas. Uh, so Amanda, before we, before we started recording, you had mentioned, um, that you, well, why don't you explain it? Cause I don't remember exactly. Yeah, so here in Utah, <laughs> we had a specific district poll titles. Um, and every single one of those titles included LGBTQIA plus authors or people of color. And, um, the library, the Utah Library Association and um, others here, other educators here in Utah are pushing back. We know that the books belong on shelves. So we did a press conference because the conservative parents are starting to pull books without even reading the books, without even understanding the entirety of the book. And the one thing that we're pushing right now is that you read the book from start to finish before you even question the book. You don't just pull a sentence or two. You don't, un you need to understand the entirety of the book. And we first got pushback in the state um, from Call Me Max. Um, I have it right above me. I constantly have that book by Kyle Lukoff above me. Um, parents had a problem in a third grade classroom saying that we were teaching sex into our classrooms. Well, that book's about a transgender child. And as you heard earlier in our conversation, being transgender is not a sexual orientation. It's a gender identity. It's who these kids know themselves to be. And so um, saying that we're teaching sex is, is just flat out lie. We are teaching about who these kids know themselves to be. So um, what we kind of discussed at this um, you know, press conference is that talking about sexuality in schools is taboo unless that sexuality is mm. heterosexual. And, um, you know, when we start to say, well, LGBTQIA plus is sex, um, what happens is that we're seeing LGBTQIA plus identities, um, they're being seen as not age appropriate or not appropriate for the classroom. Um, but the truth is, when we talk about LGBTQIA plus, we're talking about love, we're talking about kids, we should be talking about love, not sex. Um, you know, maybe as they get older, but when we're talking about a third grade classroom, we're definitely not talking about sex, nor do we bring sex into the classroom. Um, but that leads our students to believe, you know, that the, they're not welcome in the classrooms. We're seeing lower academic achievement, bullying, lack of family support, um, you know, increased mental health problems. We've talked about that. There's social exclusion when, when our identities are being pressed um, and a, an increased suicidality. So um, we really do owe it to our students to make sure that that representation is in schools. And that's what the big push here nationally is, is that don't remove our books and make sure you're reading it, um, the book from front to back. Um, and what are you learning from that book? It may have an explicit moment or two, but we're going to be reading these things. We need to read these things. We're only gonna grow and learn from these things. And um, I absolutely believe that we should not ever ban a book because that makes students wanna read it even more. <laughs> oh yeah, it sure does, it sure does. Um, so I, th I think this leads in nicely to the to the question I, I wanted to ask you about representation because um, so we like as uh, as as you know a media company that is 
interested in making sure that there is a disability in in the media, a disability, um, authentic disability representation in the media that we, you know, that we watch and we read. Um, I'm assuming that also, you know, uh, we also want that representation for LGBTQIA plus communities, right? And so let's take, for example, the book that you have, you know, behind you, Amanda, um, Call Me Max, right? Um, I have heard, and I'm sure you have heard too, this um idea that like well if kids read this book then they're you're just confusing them like like um they they're gonna read this book and it doesn't just apply to call me max it could be a a ya novel right that has a, a a romantic relationship that's not heteronormative they're gonna read this book they're gonna get confused they're gonna you know um, think that there's something that they're not. Shambi, you, you mentioned that, right? Um, like the error, right? Pointing out the quote unquote error in someone's thinking about their identity or sexuality. Like how, how, how do you respond to that? Because I'm sure even the people who are listening to this podcast who are very progressive, <laughs> you know, and have, have an idea about this and disability may not, may not have that light bulb maybe not have uh, has turned on for them for as far as identity and, and sexuality. Yeah. So when you say, you know, it might confuse them, we often also hear, unfortunately, that it might turn them gay. Number one, our books are never going to turn someone gay. But what it does, just like any other curriculum or any other teachable moment or learning, is it has you think, it has you question, it has you turn work into we know that you know real reality is all of this is a social construct we've constructed these ideas of gender we've constructed sexuality we should question it we should wonder we should try to figure out our own identities that's part of our life journey and if these books get you to question your own sexuality or your own gender amazing that's what i want it to do i want it to take you on a path of who am I? We need to self-explore as human beings. And just like any other way that we learn in schools, this is what books are for. Teach us, help us question things. It's, I, I hope that you as educators sit back and say, you know what? I want to question this too. I want to look into this too. That's what we do as educators. We turn it into a learn, a teachable moment and we learn and we will only grow as a society when we allow everyone to explore their own gender journeys, sexuality journey, identities in any shape or form. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just double down on that because I can speak to being cisgender, straight, a white female, right? I, I have a lot of privilege in my life for sure. But I also at least can speak to what it's like to be a female and make 70 cents on the dollar. So if I read a book that's like, oh, the women don't need this kind of money because the man brings money home, right? I should question that. And I should be pulling, I should be offended that that is being taught to my kid, right? Or at least have a conversation around that. Um, like, whoa, that's where this occurs, right? Um, and, and again, I, I went through a very traditional teaching pathway program, right? We didn't talk about sexuality. We, we didn't talk about some of the harder stuff to our jobs, <laughs> which we're finding out we should have probably been learning about some of this, right? But I'll give you an example. When, when again, the intersectionality start coming up, I was like, oh man, I don't know what to say about this, right? I'm gonna say it wrong, so I'm gonna not say it, mm, yeah. <laughs> right? And I think that's kind of our knee-jerk reaction. Um, and then, you know, I have these opportunities to work with amazing people like Amanda that really start getting me thinking and then all of a sudden questioning and sometimes questioning is uncomfortable. And then you, you, you know, affirm your own thinking around things and then you grow. Growing is hard, folks. I mean, like I'm in teacher education. Growing is hard and we have pushback on growth all the time. Um, but I still experience discomfort. I mean, uh, for example, uh, there is a really interesting uh, uh, drag 
uh, troupe, right? That that it, Justin Bond, for example, is of drag syndrome. Uh, it's a London-based um, group for people with Down syndrome who like to dress in drag, and it's a professional performance, right? And we didn't necessarily talk about uh, you know drag king and queens being a performance-based, which is part of gender expression, right? But um, but I remember my first knee-jerk reaction to that as an educator, thinking. Oh my gosh, because there, there's there's a whole avenue of different ways to do performance drag, right? And my first knee-jerk reaction was, this is going to be seen as somebody who doesn't doesn't understand what they're doing or is somebody enticing is there some problematic behavior from somebody who's in charge here like my mind went all the negative spaces mm -hmm. that we encourage people not to go to right, right. um i was very protective and very patriarchal and then i had to pull that back and question and this is one thing probably i would i would push all of your listeners and uh, to think about is we might have two journeys that we're all taking at this point. One is our personal journey of we got to get our unconscious biases out there. We've got to challenge our own thinking. We might even have to come to terms with some of the things that we don't even know we don't accept until you're like, oh man, you know, I'm looking around at my classroom and I recognize that I have all these gendered words on the wall. There is no room for anybody else, right? So one, that's my personal journey. And then two, as an educator, I need to help others on their journeys too, which which is the safe spaces, the the relationship building, challenging policies, working with my admin to, to fix problems that are that are school wide. So, you know, we have our classroom environment, we have our school environment, we have our community environment. There's lots of work we can do. So that might be two different journeys and Sometimes we might struggle with, I mean, again, I, I come from a very conservative state. We're taught what's right and wrong from the time we're little, whether we know we're being taught that or not. And then all of a sudden you're challenged in a space where you're like, wow, if, if I continue with that belief system, this kid is in danger. Mm -hmm. I need to figure out a way to stay with my core values and my belief systems in a way I'm comfortable with, but also do my job and keep this kid safe. So we might have a couple challenges as educators that we're having to work through. Um, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, Shambi, Polly, Polly Cronus. I'm going to, I'm just going to edit it out is what I'm going to do. You're Amanda Darrow. Amanda Darrow. Uh, I really could have like another hour of conversation uh, with, with, with y'all. This has been fantastic. And I hope whoever's listening can see the connection between, you know, we, we fight so hard for disability rights, you know, um, in, in inclusive education spaces. And we need to also think about how to include LGBTQIA plus communities in that inclusion. In inclusive education is about all students, not just a segment of students. So um, thank you so much for your time uh, and being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, the Anchor app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a question or comment? Email us your feedback at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., and Kathleen T. for their continued support of the podcast. When you become a patron, your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. And you can even get a shout out like the fine people we just mentioned. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast to become a patron today and get access to all our unedited interviews, including the conversations you heard today. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at mcie.org. We will be back in a couple of weeks with our guest, Greta Harrison, the host of the Born Fabulous podcast. Thanks for your time and attention. Until next time, remember, inclusion always works.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.